We all have our heroes, people we admire, people we respect, people that we would love to emulate. We wish we had their talents and their abilities and their genius and their perseverance. We all have our heroes. I have a number of heroes. For one, John Wayne is my hero. That's right. Winston Churchill was also a hero. While growing up, Sandy Koufax was my hero in the summer months, while John Unitas was my hero in the fall. Billy Graham and Chuck Smith are two of my heroes. In so many ways, my dad will always be my hero. But the number one hero in my life is Christianity's greatest apostle. His name was Paul. Every time I study Paul's life and exploits, I get pumped. I get excited. And after spending the last 10 days walking in his footsteps, I can't help but talk about him here this morning. If ever there was a life lived to the fullest, it was the life of the Apostle Paul. He was a man who burned for Jesus Christ. In terms of physique, Paul was not much. He may have been a super heavyweight spiritually, but physically he was a featherweight. Paul was a physical peep squeak. Tradition tells us that the man was barely five feet tall. In fact, there's a third century novel. It's entitled The Acts of Paul and Thecla that give a physical description of the Apostle Paul. I quote, He was small in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built. In short, the man was a stump. He was short and thick. His eyebrow, eyebrows looked like one caterpillar crawling across a guy's forehead. But the description finishes. Full of grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. As to his physical stature, Paul was a gnat. But when he was measured spiritually, this man was a giant. Here was a man who lived long before the age of jet airplanes, long before the days of radio and TV and satellite broadcasts and even the Internet. Paul logged most of his 8,100 miles his frequent flyer miles on foot. Can you imagine the stamps in Paul's passport? We spent two weeks on a bus, on a plane, on foot, and on a boat tracing this man's steps. Paul had none of the modern transportation we had, and yet he took the the gospel to the whole known world of his day. And still, in his part time, he found the opportunity to write half the New Testament. And realize... Paul's success came despite enormous persecution. Paul encountered difficulty and hardship and discrimination everywhere he went. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists the sufferings he endured for Christ. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, 
in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And you think, you've had a tough day. We moan and groan and think we're martyrs when we get laughed at at work or school for reading our Bibles. Hey, Paul's life makes ours look like a bed of roses. And yet he counted it an honor to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. For more than 30 years, Paul faithfully preached the gospel. And he departed this earth with no regrets. On the eve of his graduation to heaven, he wrote to his sidekick, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. What an amazing thing to say at the end of your life. And not only did Paul preach Christianity, he lived his life for Jesus. Paul practiced what he preached. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he makes an astounding statement, a statement that astonishes me every time I read it. He said, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you realize what this man is saying? He says, do what I do, say what I say, and you can be confident that the Holy God will be with you. Can you make that statement? Maybe at church, after tech wins, while you're on your best behavior, when you're minding your spiritual manners. But what about when you first wake up on Monday morning? Can you say, hey, do what I do, say what I say, and God will be with you? I doubt it. Or what about at 6 a.m. when you're in rush hour traffic or when a friend stabs you in the back or when a coworker cops an attitude or when your wife starts to nag or you go to work and you're handed that pink slip? Can you say right then, right there, do what I do, say what I say, and the God of peace will be with you? Well, Paul could. I'm telling you, if God's Spirit hadn't placed Paul's statement in the Scripture, I wouldn't have believed him. I would have accused him of being arrogant. You know, people say that a man's greatest compliments come from his enemies. And this was also true of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, in the Macedonian town of Thessaloniki, not far from where the hotel where we spent the night several nights ago, an enemy of the gospel referred to Paul and his pals as these men who have turned the world upside down. Notice the very men who wanted to stamp out the gospel had to acknowledge the worldwide impact of Paul's ministry. In Ephesus, another place where we visited, Acts chapter 19 tells the story of the seven sons of Sceva. These were Jewish exorcists who had witnessed Paul confronting the paganism of a religion that was chock full of the occult. Paul was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And these Jews were trying to mimic Paul's miracles. But when they put their hand to the casting out of a demon, this demon spoke out of the man and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The demon-possessed man ended up attacking them, brutalizing them. He beat the daylights out of them, and they barely escaped with their lives. It was ugly, it was awful, but boy... They knew Paul. You know, back when I played high school football a century or so ago, 
there was one way that you knew you were really good. And that is if the other team knew your number. If you were known in the opponent's locker room, you were tough stuff. You knew that you were a threat when the other team knew your name. And that was true of Paul. What was so amazing about Paul is not only was he known in heaven, you would expect that, but he was also known in hell. The demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Paul wasn't just known in the halls of heaven. Paul was known in the gates of hell. You see, Paul's life was anything but boring. It was a spiritual adventure. Paul was a pioneer. He was an overcomer. His life was full of passion and power. And he owed it all to an eight-word philosophy by which he lived his life. Paul's life was propelled by a motivating motto. Eight words made this man tick, spurred him on, lifted him up. He had a philosophy that kept him and held him in its grip. And today, I want to share with you Paul's eight-word philosophy. But before I do, I want us to check out Paul up close and personal. You need to see this guy in action. In fact, before we're done today, I hope that Paul will be your hero too. Turn first in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Paul is on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have been traveling through the region of Galatia. Our tour was actually a little west of Galatia, but we got the lay of the land. We kind of saw how uh, the picture looked. Galatia is a mountainous region, which was occupied by backwoods and superstitious folk. Throughout this region, Paul was being opposed by the Jews. The conflict came to a head in the town of Lystra. When Paul and Barnabas entered the gates of the city that day, they saw a lame man. Paul discerned somehow that this man had faith to be healed. He tells the guy to stand up. I mean, just that simple. But suddenly, the guy not only stands, he starts leaping and walking. It's a miracle. The pagan people of Lystra think that they've been visited by the Greek gods. Since Paul was doing all the talking, they called him Hermes, who was the messenger. And Barnabas, since he was a little taller than Paul, they called him Zeus. The pagans even tried to offer them sacrifices. Paul stopped them, and he began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Of course, while all this was happening, Jews who had opposed Paul in the previous town, they arrive in Lystra, and they start mingling with the crowd. While Paul is preaching, the Jews are somehow turning the crowd against Paul. They're stirring up the people. They're turning them into a frenzied mob. It's sad, but one moment they wanted to sacrifice to Paul. The next moment they wanted to make Paul the sacrifice. They end up stoning Paul with rocks. They think he's dead. His sidekicks drag his body out of the town. You know, years later, Paul will write back to the Galatians about the scars that he bore in his body for Jesus' sake. He was referring, no doubt, to this stoning in Lystra. Now picture Paul's pals. They're all huddled around what they think is a corpse. They're mourning. They're grieving over their friend, their partner in ministry. In fact, they're making funeral arrangements. One guy's got a tape measure. He's sort of sizing Paul up for a new suit. Someone else has got his wallet. They're thumbing through it, looking for the next of kin so they can call. Another guy, he checks Paul's driver's license to see if he's an organ donor. 
When all of a sudden, we're told in verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Imagine that. What they thought was a corpse suddenly rises up, knocks the dust and blood off of him, gets his balance, and goes back into the city to finish the sermon that he had started. Wow. Talk about courage. If it had been me, I'd be thinking, you know, Paul, Jesus gave us a few verses, you know, about knocking the dust off our feet and moving on. You know, I don't think you're welcome back in Lystra. But Paul wouldn't hear of it. He's got a message to preach. And he's not going to leave until he finishes delivering to them the good news. Here is a man who shows perseverance in the face of persecution. This man is fearless. Here is a believer with a backbone. Paul didn't expect to get patted on the back for being a Christian. He was living for Jesus in the same world that Jesus lived. And they sure didn't pat Jesus on the back. Persecution was no surprise to Paul. And when it came, he counted it an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Later in this same chapter, he passes back through Lystra. And he tells the disciples in verse 22, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You can be sure they listened to Paul's every word. Long before he got to the point of persecution, far in advance, Paul settled this in his mind. He was going to stand for Jesus regardless of cost. Paul came ready for action. Paul reminds me of James Calvert. Calvert was a missionary to the Fiji Islands. On Calvert's first trip, the ship captain realized the dangers that would be facing James Calvert. I mean, door-to-door witnessing among man-eating cannibals is not the safest thing to do. When they invite you in for dinner, that's not a good thing. This captain told Calvert, you can't just walk in among these savages. You'll lose your life. James Calvert replied, we died before we came. Paul had just that kind of attitude. Perseverance in the face of persecution. We all need this kind of courage. No matter how the world stands in my way, no matter if they put me down, no matter if they threaten my life, I won't back down from what God wants me to be and what He wants me to do. Do you have Paul's perseverance? I believe that if Jesus delays His coming, the cost of living the Christian life will rise significantly. Hopefully none of us will be asked to die a martyr's death, but other forms of persecution may be ahead. We need to come ready. And we can be. We can be ready. If we adopt an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. But before I reveal Paul's philosophy to you, I want to look at another episode from Paul's life. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Paul is now on his second missionary journey. This time his sidekick is Silas. And they've sailed to the city of Philippi. They start a church by the river. Paul delivers a slave girl from a demon. But again, they run into persecution. Someone trumps up charges against them and brings them to the town magistrates. The trial is rigged, and Paul and Silas are sentenced to a beating with rods. This was a severe Roman punishment. 
The victims were stripped of their clothes. They were presented naked in front of the crowd. Then they were hit across the back and buttocks and head with a bamboo cane. We were right there where it happened. It was amazing to be there. Paul and Silas were then taken and thrown into jail. They were locked in the stocks. You know, usually the prisons in these kinds of towns, towns like Philippi, were in the basement of the jailer's house. They were cold, they were dark, they were damp, they were rat-infested. These prisoners were chained in iron shackles designed to stretch out their extremities and cause unbearable pain. Now here is where Paul and Silas are held. Remember, all they've done is start a church and cast a demon out of a young slave girl. Yet now they're in excruciating pain. Their backs are a mass of bloody ribbons. They're pulsating and bleeding. They're hanging from iron chains. Their lacerated backs are rubbing up and down against a stone-cold wall. Hungry rats are nibbling at their toes. There's no rescue in sight. Imagine you being there. What would be your attitude? I'll tell you my attitude. I'd be complaining. God, what did I do to deserve this? All I wanted to do was to serve you, Lord. Lord, where are you? You've left me. You've abandoned me. Lord, I thought you loved me. But look at the reaction of Paul and Silas. Guys, I'm not making this up. Read verse 25 for yourself. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were. Here these men are. They're in searing pain, yet they're singing praise. You know, we've seen Paul's perseverance, but here is a peace in the midst of the worst pain. These men are so tuned in spiritually, so online spiritually, so latched on to their blessings in Christ that the physical pain they're experiencing really doesn't touch them. It doesn't matter to them. The change in their circumstances hasn't altered the joy in their hearts. And let me ask you, how susceptible are you to changing circumstances? You know, the sad truth is is that most of us, we live in bondage to our surroundings. As long as our situation goes well, we feel great. But the moment trouble strikes... The moment we're forced to deal with anything unpleasant or inconvenient or bothersome, we get bummed out. We forget the joy we have in Jesus. See, I can promise you one thing. Life won't always go the way you want. It won't. People will let you down. Bad things do happen to good people. Life can be cold and cruel. And God uses our fallen world and the suffering it produces to grow us spiritually. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pain. It is in the toughest times that God speaks the loudest. You can't always control your circumstances But you can control the way you react to your circumstances. And this is the secret of life. You can trust God despite your circumstances. You see, the one thing God does promise us is His peace even in the midst of our pain. During our time in Philippi, we read Paul's command to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Donna Chapman insisted that we sing the song right there in Philippi. And so I led. What a sight that was. But we sang, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Hey, I love this word rejoice. Do you know what rejoice means? It means to take joy. You see, sometimes joy doesn't just fall in your lap. You've got to reach up with the grip of faith. And you've got to grab some joy. Through the midst of your painful circumstances, you've got to take your joy from God Himself. When we do, He fills our hearts with an indescribable peace. And the key to experiencing this peace and joy is an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life, and you should too. I want to explain to you Paul's secret to life. But first, I want to look at one more episode from his life. Turn to Acts chapter 21. After Paul's third missionary journey, he returns to Jerusalem to fulfill a lifelong dream. He wants to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews. In fact, he's taken a vow, hoping that his respect for the law is going to win him a hearing among the Jews there in the temple. But as soon as Paul shows him his face in the temple in Jerusalem, the place erupts. The angry Jews, they turn into a lynching mob and they storm Paul. They start to drag him out of the temple to stone him. They're beating him all along the way. Well, the Roman troops on guard that day, they heard what was going on. They heard the ruckus and they went to squelch the uproar. They rescue Paul and they start to take him back to headquarters, which was the fortress of Antonio in the corner of the temple. They're saving Paul from an angry mob. You'd think Paul would be glad to get to safety that he'd be happy to finally get some fortress walls between him and the bloodthirsty mob. But not so. His own safety is the last on his list of priorities. You see, Paul has come to preach the gospel. He's come to tell the Jews about Jesus. And so we read in verse 40, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. This is the same angry mob that was trying to kill him. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And he goes on and he gives to them the testimony of how his life has been changed by Jesus the Messiah. Here was a man who held on to his purpose while others would have panicked. Paul refuses to lose focus. He doesn't forget why he's come to Jerusalem. He came to the temple that day to preach the gospel and preach the gospel. He will. And he's not going to let a little riot stop him in the process. You see, the problem with many of us is that we start out with good intentions until we feel the pressure, until we get knocked off track. It's when the heat gets applied, when life starts to get hectic. That's when we panic. Oh, we leave church on Sunday, excited about living for Jesus. But then Monday rolls around, and we get distracted. Our good intentions get forgotten. We lose focus and purpose. But Paul didn't allow fear or worry or uncertainty or selfish interest to obscure his vision. He never lost sight of his calling, his purpose, and its eternal prize. 
Paul reminds me of Alden Strait. Talk about determination. Alden lived in Iowa at the time. He was 73 years old. Old Alvin, his eyes were getting bad, so he couldn't get a driver's license any longer. But no matter to Alvin, when he heard that his brother across the state in Wisconsin was sick, he was so determined to be by his brother's side that he jumped on his lawnmower and he drove 240 miles across Iowa to be with his brother in Wisconsin. Now that's commitment. That's not just good intentions. That's determination. That's follow through. Do you have that kind of determination to live for Jesus? And how do you develop that kind of commitment, that kind of tenacity? Well, there's an eight-word philosophy that if you'll adopt it for yourself, you'll have that kind of determination. There's an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life, and you can too. And I want to share it with you this morning. But I got one more episode that I want us to turn to. That's in Acts chapter 28. Chapter 28 opens with Paul recovering from a cruise gone sour. His ship should have wintered on the island of Crete, the same island that our cruise ship spent the night. But rather than dock at Crete, the ship Paul was on set sail in inclement weather. For 14 days and nights, a violent storm drove the ship 645 miles off course. Paul's ship eventually sunk off the coast of Malta, another of the Greek isles. And yet through God's miraculous intervention, through Paul's careful instructions, the ship's passengers and crew, all 276 of them, reached the Maltese shore safely. Now imagine Paul. For two weeks, he has been fighting for his life at sea. And I now know a little bit about this. Because I caught a bug on the cruise portion of our tour. And I spent a night fighting for my life at sea. Hovering over the toilet. Fighting for my life. That's all I'm going to say. And like Paul, I woke up the next morning weak as water. My legs felt like rubber. I mean, a fight at sea renders you totally exhausted. And this was Paul. He was still recoiling, still recovering from his ordeal when he tells us in verse 3 that he was gathering firewood. Can you imagine? But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, notice Paul is being a servant. He's gathering firewood. He's caring for others. Paul is being persistent even when he's pooped. The day after my ordeal, my fight at sea, I came out of that cabin only for some fresh air and for a Coca-Cola. The last thing I was worried about was building a fire to help anyone else. I was hoping everybody was going to minister to me, but not Paul. The guy was a servant. Here's what he thought. I'll have all eternity to recover. I'll have all heaven to be comfortable. I've only got a few short days to see that I have plenty of company for eternity in heaven. And he made the most of it. And as Paul gathers sticks, 
You know the story. A poisonous viper latches onto Paul's hand. The locals see it. They gasp. They expect Paul, like most men, to drop over dead. But when God delivers him, when he survives, they consider it a miracle. Imagine the opportunity all this provided Paul to share the gospel. But it all started when Paul chose to be a servant, even when he was exhausted, even when he didn't feel like it. His own limitations didn't slow Paul down, and it was due to an eight-word philosophy by which he lived his life. How do you stop a man like this? Well, the answer is you don't. Paul's faith was unquenchable. His witness was undeniable. His stand for Jesus was unshakable. And it was all because of an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. And to uncover that philosophy, we need to turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as you're turning there, let me add it all up for you. Perseverance in the face of persecution. Peace in the midst of the worst pain. Purpose while others would have panicked. Persistence, even when you're pooped. This is the way Paul lived. And it was due to an eight-word philosophy. We find it here in two verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And here it is. Drum roll, please. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here are eight powerful words. To live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, Paul's supreme desire was not to live or die or anything in between. The burning issue in his life was not his goals or his comfort or his status or his future. Paul's utmost desire was that Jesus Christ would be magnified, would be elevated, would be lifted up in his life. If that meant living, fine. If that meant dying, so be it. His only concern was for Jesus to be glorified. On our last day of our trip, we stood there in the ruins of ancient Philippi, and we were privileged to stand on the floor of one of the very first church buildings ever erected. This octagonal floor dated back to 340 A.D. You see, prior to that time, churches met in people's homes. It was the only place that they could gather. But when Constantine, the emperor, embraced Christianity, believers all across the Roman Empire started to meet openly and publicly. Many of them began to build buildings. And apparently those in Philippi were particularly bold. I'm sure there was still some residual hostilities. They didn't know that the empire was turning, that Christianity would now become a favored religion. All they knew is that for a time, they were able to come out into the open. And these Philippians, they were bold. They came out into the public square and actually built themselves a building in which to meet in. 
Remember, persecution was still a threat. But these Philippians, they were the first to come out into the open. It was as if they were drawing a target on their backs. It was as if they were saying, hey, if you want us, come and get us. But we're going to take a stand for Jesus Christ in our city. It seems that they had read the words of Paul and that they had adopted his motto. For to them, to live was Christ and to die was gain. Paul understood that a person isn't ready to live until they're first ready to die. When an author writes a novel, he knows in the beginning how he wants the book to end. It's impossible to develop the plot without knowing where you want the road to lead. Paul approached life this way. He settled the ending first. Paul dealt with the final chapter of his life from the outset. Thus he was free to tackle the rest of his life head on, always pressing forward, never retreating, never looking back. If Paul lived, then great. It was life with his Savior. If he died, greater still. It was life with his Savior minus the rocks and rods and mobs and persecution. Here's verse 21 in another translation. It says, living means opportunities for Christ and dying. Well, that's better yet. To Paul, Jesus was all that really mattered in his life. Yes, he loved his family. He had friends. He had colleagues. Yes, he loved the churches that he started. But out distancing all other concerns in his life was his love for Jesus. It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. We, have determined, we are determined to have what we want most. Now, true. You see, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is what is it that we want most? To Paul, Jesus was not just the top of a long list, a shopping list of other priorities. No, Jesus was the list. He wasn't just a slice of the pie of life. Jesus was the whole pie. Every other concern in Paul's life was secondary to bringing glory to his Lord Jesus. Paul had eliminated all other rivals. There was no other attraction competing with his affections. His whole heart belonged to Jesus. Yes, he had family and friends and church and work, but everything else in Paul's life gained its significance as it was related to Jesus. Here's an old southern expression some of you identify with. Paul placed all his eggs in one basket. Jesus is all that matters in the long run, and that's what makes everything else matter in the short run. When your goal is to bring glory to yourself, a lot can go wrong. You become vulnerable to a whole host of problems. doesn't take much to upset your plans. You end up trapped by worry and fear. What if this? What if that? You become victimized by circumstances that are beyond your control, which are most circumstances. But when you adopt Paul's philosophy, to live is Christ, to die is gain, when you're not worried about you, your image or your comfort or your convenience or your status or your success, 
then no matter what happens, as long as Christ gets glorified, you win in the end. If I live in a hut or if I live in a mansion, if I'm the CEO or if I'm the grocery bagger, if my team wins by five touchdowns or loses by five touchdowns, if my life points people to Jesus, I am the winner. It really doesn't matter if anyone notices me. Trust me, God in heaven will notice. Paul was caught up in something far greater than himself. He would go anywhere. He would do anything, make any sacrifice needed to glorify Jesus. Paul gave up his whole life for Jesus, but ironically, no one ever lived a fuller and richer life than Paul. Reminds us of what Jesus said. If a man seeks to gain his life, he'll lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. If your life is boring and dull, if it's lost its thrill and its sense of adventure, if you this morning are choked out by worries and fears that won't matter a hundred years from now, it's time for you to change. Remember what I told you earlier. It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have other things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. Hey, what is it that you want more than for Jesus to be glorified in your life? Jesus died for you. He loves you with a boundless love. He wants your life to count for Him. He has a heaven full of joy and blessing and excitement in store for you. Guys, what better way to spend our one and only life, what better way than to give it away for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to fill in the blank. It's it's an easy question. It's a fill-in-the-blank question. How would you complete this sentence? To live is blank. In your life. To live is, how would you answer that? Work? Success? Friends? Kids. Oh, those kids. Sports? Sex? Hobbies? Popularity? Security? To live is what? Work that lacks fulfillment? Is that what you really want to live for? Success that's at best temporary? Friends oh, that come and go? Kids that grow up, leave home, forget the address, never show up again? Sports that you can't play forever? Sex that leaves you empty and ashamed? Hobbies that grow boring? Popularity that's fickle, security that's just an illusion anyway? Are these things really worth your one and only life? Listen to Paul's words again here in Philippians chapter 1. Listen one more time. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Make that your philosophy. Walk in Paul's footsteps And like Paul, your life will become a grand adventure.